morning, Bethel. So many of you know that almost four years ago now, my wife Whitney and I moved here from Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I can't believe it's already been that long. Like, it feels like just yesterday. Um, what you might not know, though, is that there's a popular slogan in the city of Louisville that says, keep Louisville weird. Whitney actually had a bumper sticker on her car that said that. I think there are a couple other cities, too. I think Austin, Texas, and Portland, Oregon has that saying, too. I haven't been to either one of those places, but I can say that in the city of Louisville, that concept seems to be embraced. Uh, it's, it's funny, but it, its purpose is to encourage folks in the city to buy local, to financially support what's unique to Louisville and help it thrive rather than allow larger corporations to come in and uh, whitewash the community. Like they want what's unique to the city to stand out. The, the people in that town love the city's uniqueness and they want it to stay that way. Thus the saying, keep Louisville weird. Well, last year, Dr. Russell Moore, he's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He spoke on the subject, why Christians must keep Christianity strange. And he said this, quote, one of the most dangerous things we could do, I think, as the church is to try to normalize Christianity and to try to normalize the gospel. Christianity is speaking a strange and scandalous word into whatever culture it comes into. We're currently in a series on 1 Corinthians, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the saints in Corinth who, in a number of ways, were conforming to the culture around them. They were marked, as we saw in chapters 1 to 4, by pride, jealousy, strife, division, and the wisdom of the world when they should have been characterized by unity, love, and the wisdom of God. They were marked, as we saw last week in chapter 5, by their arrogance about a kind of egregious sexual immorality not even tolerated in a secular culture when they should have been characterized by their sincerity, truth, and purity. So in short, they were not living in step with the gospel. And so they were not distinct from the culture as they should have been. And the Apostle Paul won't, he can't let that slide. He confronts the Corinthians over their sin. He shows how they're living out of step with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he calls them to live lives that are shaped by the cross. That's why we're calling the series Cruciform Living, cruciform meaning in the shape of the cross. The saints in Corinth and we at Bethel need to live our lives with the cross of Christ, with the gospel at the center we need to be shaped by the cross and its values, not the world around us and its values. We need to be distinct. And in that sense, not in some weird, goofy way, we need to be strange. And this is certainly true regarding the issues that Paul is going to discuss here in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, which we're covering this morning. Here, Paul confronts the church over two significant issues. The first one being lawsuits against believers 
and the second one being sexual immorality, specifically sexual relations with prostitutes. And as he does this, he shows how the cross of Christ affects the church in three big ways. One, the church's witness and ethic. Two, the church's identity. And three, the church's purity. So Chris said this last week as he covered chapter 5, but I think it's appropriate again this week. If you're visiting this with us this morning, welcome. You have chosen well. You've picked a doozy. Um, in, all seriousness, though, in all seriousness, though, this is uh, why I love preaching through books of the Bible. We don't get to pick and choose what we want to preach on. The Bible chooses for us. God chooses what we preach on. Uh, and we highly value that here. All right, well, let's dive into point one. The church's witness and ethic, verses one to eight. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find this text on page 954. In these first eight verses, Paul's pointing out two specific problems in the Corinthian church, both of which are related to lawsuits. The first is that the church is not settling disputes between members in-house and is instead allowing them to be taken to law before the unrighteous. And the second is that the saints in the church are having lawsuits with each other in the first place. And Paul is upset about this. That's evident right off the bat in verse 1. There he says, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, the exact nature of these lawsuits isn't clear, but Paul's use of the word defrauded and defraud in verses 7 to 8 indicate that they may have been related to disputes over business or property. What is clear, though, is that Paul is angry over the situation. The question is, why? Well, he answers that for us in verses 2 to 4 by asking two questions that both start with the phrase, do you not know? In verse 2 he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Here he may be thinking of a text like Daniel 7, 21 to 22. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Now, Paul doesn't go into detail about what this future judgment looks like, and that's not the point. The point of bringing this up comes next when he says, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? So do you see what's happened? One saint is taking another to court before the unrighteous, but Paul's rebuke at this point isn't, over, isn't for the, the, the person who's going to court. The rebuke is for the church. And he's telling them that they should have been able to solve this on their own, in-house. And he makes the same point in verses 3 to 4. He starts with the question, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Here he could have in mind what Jude mentions in verse 6 of his letter. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling... He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, that is, the day of judgment at Jesus' return. Again, Paul doesn't go into detail about the judgment of angels, about what that's going to look like. 
Instead, he quickly makes his point. If we, the saints, are to judge angels, how much more than, verse 3, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? So Paul's rebuking the church for not settling these disputes in-house and instead allowing them to be taken to law before the unrighteous. This is a big deal, I think, for at least two reasons. One, it signifies that the Corinthians are yet again living out of step with whom they are in Christ. As God's redeemed people, they should be a model of justice, righteousness, love, unity, and peace. And as God's redeemed people who will one day in the future judge the world and angels, they should be willing and able to handle these present earthly matters on their own. And two, in outsourcing their grievances to the unrighteous, they are tarnishing the name of Christ in the surrounding community. Can you see how that would be the case? Think of it this way. If I'm an unbeliever, why would I want your Jesus if you who claim to have him are coming to me to solve your disputes? Or, if I'm an unbeliever, why would I find your Jesus compelling if you are marked by the same division and strife that marks the culture around me? It's no wonder that Paul says in verse 5, I say this to your shame. Earlier in chapter 4, verse 14, as he's concluding a section in which he rebuked the Corinthians for their prideful divisions and factionalism, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children, but not here. Here, he says these things to their shame. There's some biting sarcasm here too. Remember, Earlier in this letter, Paul corrects the Corinthians for valuing the wisdom of the world instead of the wisdom of God. They thought themselves to be wise. But now Paul says, Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Paul's grieved over this, as he should be. That's not all. There's a second problem here, and that's that the Corinthians are having lawsuits with each other in the first place. So Paul says in verses 7 to 8, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Which is another way of saying cheated or tricked out of something you own. But you yourselves, Paul says, wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Here, it might be helpful to point out what Paul is not talking about. He's not addressing lawsuits with unbelievers or corporate entities, although I think we should take care how we pursue those and how we walk on that front. Paul also is not talking about criminal cases. So if murder or abuse took place among members at Bethel, God forbid, we are not going to try to handle that in-house. But what then is going on here? Well, he's addressing an issue in the church 
where believers are having lawsuits against one another over matters that in the grand scheme of eternity are trivial. And he's saying it's better to suffer wrong and be defrauded than to seek restitution or compensation. Why? Well, listen to David Garland's comments on the situation. I think they're really helpful. He says, quote, No matter who wins or loses the lawsuit, all lose spiritually. Their litigious spirit betrays a moral deficiency and reveals the triumph of selfishness over love. The upshot is the complete loss of any sense of brotherhood in the community. Litigation by its very nature promoted enmity from the slander that was part and parcel of a trial and could only have fueled the church's factionalism. Even if the Christian were motivated solely by personal gain, the option between possible minor material gain in this life versus the certainty of, glory, of a glorious legacy in the life to come should make the decision easy. Refusing to seek redress for a wrong is not only better than bringing charges against another Christian before pagan judges, but also better than impaneling a jury of Christians to hear the complaint. It reveals that one understands, accepts, and lives out the wisdom of the cross. So does that make sense? Paul is calling the church to a radical gospel ethic here. This is what Jesus modeled in 1 Peter 2, 22-23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Make no mistake, this is difficult to live out. We need the Lord's grace for this. And we may, be, we may even be tempted to sit here and to try to qualify a passage like this to death. And some qualifications are necessary, and uh, we've already mentioned some of those, but I think it's important that we let the Word speak here. Christians can suffer wrong without retaliation because Jesus suffered wrong for us on the cross, because God will one day right all wrongs. Christians can be defrauded and not selfishly and greedily pursue compensation because in Jesus we have an eternal inheritance, a treasure that cannot, that will not be taken away. And Christians who have been shown the love of Christ should certainly extend that love to their brothers and sisters in the faith and not wrong and defraud them. The Corinthians weren't getting this. They desperately needed their lives to be shaped by the cross, and so do we. So let's be sure to live in a way that's worthy of the gospel. Our actions say something about Christ, whether for good or bad, they say something. Let's be sure to put away strife and dissension in our midst. Let's be sure to love our brothers and sisters with the love of Jesus and be quick to repent if we're in sin, if we're in the wrong. And let's be diligent to live out a gospel ethic that says, I would rather suffer wrong and be defrauded than insist on my own rights to the detriment of my brothers and sisters in Christ in the name of Jesus. The cross of Christ radically affects the church's witness and ethic. But it also gloriously affects, and this is our second point, the church's identity, verses 9 through 11. So in verse 9, 
Paul continues his argument with another do you not know question and asks, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? One important thing that I think is happening here is that he is continuing his train of thought from verse 8. That might not be immediately clear, but here's why I think that's the case. In the original language, the root for the word unrighteous is the same as the root for the word wrong in verse 8. So, we could read verses 8 and 9 like this. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers, or do you not know that the unrighteous that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, in their behavior, some of the saints in Corinth were acting like the unrighteous. Remember, Paul mentions the unrighteous in verse 1. That's how they're acting. And they need to hear this word of warning at the beginning of verse 9. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to list 10 types of individuals who won't inherit the kingdom. And this is the same as the list that occurs at the end of chapter 5 with four new additions. So look with me at verses 9 and 10. He says, Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral. The, the Greek term used here is pornoi, which is a term that broadly refers to those who have sexual intercourse outside of marriage. So neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, in the original language, uh, there are actually two terms listed here instead of the one phrase that's in our English Bible. And the, the two terms refer to the active and passive partners in homosexual acts. But nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, those who like, angrily slander others, nor swindlers, those who cheat and defraud, will inherit the kingdom of God. Notice a, a few quick things about this list of wrongdoers. One, and I've already alluded to this, but it picks up, continues, builds on the list that's mentioned in chapter 5, and it also anticipates what's going to come in verses 12 to 20 as Paul addresses sexual immorality. Also notice that the items in this list are nouns. I think there's some encouragement in that. That means that it's those who are characterized by these sins who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Notice, too, that some of these people, like the greedy and swindlers, are related to the issue of lawsuits against believers that Paul just addressed. And then finally, uh, notice that a number of vices in this list are tied to sexual sin. We'll talk about that in a minute, but for now, it's worth noting how destructive sex outside of its proper context can be. It can send you to hell. And what's the point of all this? Again, the Corinthian church needed to be shaped by the cross, not the culture around them. And this could not be more serious. People characterized by these sins, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom. So, as those who profess Jesus, not only should the saints in Corinth not commit these sins, but also if they are committing them, they should repent quickly and run to Jesus for the forgiveness he will provide. But here's the thing. There's also a ton of grace here in this passage. Look with me at verse 11. Paul says, And such were 
some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So Paul gives the Corinthians the strictest of warnings, but he also reassures them with the best of reminders. The types of people in verses 9 and 10, such were some of the Corinthians. Oh, but no longer. Through faith in Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, they were washed, made clean. They were sanctified, made holy. They were justified, declared righteous by God. So do you see what Paul's doing? He is reminding the Corinthians who and whose they are in Christ, and he's calling them to live in light of that gospel identity. In other words, it's like he's saying, but you Corinthians were transformed by the power of the gospel, so live like it. I think there are a number of points of application for us on this front. I'll mention a few. First, for the person who's here and has not trusted Jesus to forgive them for their sins, if that is you, there's definitely bad news here. Your sin will eternally separate you from God. But there is also wonderful news here. You can be made clean regardless of what you've done. Listen to N.T. Wright explain this. I think this is just beautiful. He says that the point here isn't, quote, that God has an arbitrary list of rules, and if you break them, you won't get in. It is, rather, that his kingdom will be peopled by humans who reflect his image completely, and behavior in the present which distorts and defaces that image will lead in the opposite direction. The whole New Testament joins in the warning of the real possibility of this happening, but the whole New Testament also joins in announcing that it needn't, because God has himself provided the way in which people can leave their past and indeed their present behind and move forward into his future. Oh, praise God! Mm. He continues, you can be washed clean, whatever has happened in the past. You can be made one of God's special people, whatever you are in the present. You can be justified, declared here and now to be one of God's true people. Oh, that's awesome. Do you, know, do you know how this can happen? If you're here and you're not a Christian, trust Jesus. Run to him with empty hands and ask him to save you. And he will. You'll be made new. If that is you, please come get me after the service. I would love to talk to you about that more. Please do that. All right, second. <clears throat> for the Christian, for the person who claims the name of Jesus and is living in sin, you may need to hear the warning that's here today. If you continue on in sexual immorality, you will go to hell. If you do not turn away from your greed, you will go to hell. And apply that to all the items in this list. 
Now, that doesn't mean that you'll lose your salvation, but it does mean that if you persist in your rebellion against God, you'll prove that you were never saved in the first place. So in the words of John Owen, be killing sin or it will be killing you. But hear the grace in this passage too. Christian, you've been washed, sanctified, and justified. So stop stiff-arming God today. Repent of your sin Trust that Jesus forgives you and live in light of your true identity. Third, for the Christian who is plagued by guilt over past sin, oh, what grace there is for you in this passage today. Your past sin does not get the final word over you. You aren't defined by that. You know why? Because on the cross, Jesus paid for your sins, every one of them. Because on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for your sins all the way to the bottom because Jesus rose from the dead victorious over sin and death and because by the grace of God through faith you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you have been justified. So remember who you are. Your past sins don't define you. Rejoice in that and live out your secure identity in Jesus. Fourth, for the Christian here who is in the fight, hopefully this is all of us, but for the Christian here who looks at this list and is specifically in the fight against sin, you may be trusting in Jesus and still wrestling daily with a sin or sins in this list. If that is you, brother and sister, let me encourage you, keep fighting. Don't give up. When God saves us, he doesn't promise that temptations to sin will all of a sudden disappear or that they'll go away at all, for that matter. Rather, he gives us his spirit and the ability to fight and not give in to that temptation. And it is important that we do battle. So pray to the Lord for strength. Get involved in a community group and enlist other people to help you. Take steps to guard yourself from sin and remember who and whose you are. And then fifth, for us, for the church at Bethel, we live in a culture that is opposed to the sexual ethic Paul puts forth in these verses. We just have to admit that that's true. Our culture says... You are free to be whom you want to be and love whom you want to love. And behold, it is very good. The Bible won't allow us to affirm that. So the question is, how will we respond? Dr. Russell Moore, who I I quoted earlier, he has a great article on this. It's called The Sexual Revolution's Coming Refugee Crisis. Listen to how he addresses this issue. The danger for Christians is that we buy into the sexual revolution's narrative. I don't just mean that we accommodate ourselves to the sins and heresies of the movement, although that's always a danger too. I mean the danger is that we assume that the sexual revolution will always be triumphant, progressing upward and onward. To assume such is to assume that the sexual revolution will be able to keep its promises. It can't. We live, after all, in a cosmos ordered around the Logos of God, a Logos we have come to know personally as Jesus of Nazareth. Part of the wisdom of the universe 
is the resilience of the marital one flesh union. Marriage and the limits of sexuality not only pictures the gospel, it is also the way that human beings thrive and flourish. We think we want autonomy and novelty and transgression. What really satisfies, though, is fidelity and complementarity and incarnational love. There are two sorts of churches that won't be able to reach the refugees of the future. The first is the church that is so scared of people that we scream at them in anger and condemnation. The second sort of church that will fail these refugees is the church that gives up or silences its convictions because they are not popular. Bethel, let's not scream at outsiders in condemnation. Instead, let's show them the love, grace, and mercy of Jesus. But let's not accommodate to the world, to the whims of the culture around us. Instead, let's be shaped by the cross and unflinchingly affirm what God says in his word. So the cross affects the church's witness and ethic. The cross affects the church's identity. And finally, and this is our third point, the cross affects the church's purity. This is verses 12 to 20. In these verses, Paul again addresses the issue of sexual immorality, but this time, as it, particularly as it, as it concerns sexual relations with prostitutes who would have been easily accessible at this time in Corinth, especially at the pagan temple. What's unique here, though, is that Paul doesn't mention a specific instance of this sin. Notice in chapter 5, there's a specific instance. At the beginning of chapter 6 with lawsuits, he seems to be referring to specific instances. Here, it's a little different. But the fact is uh, that uh, he is addressing what seems to be a problem. Again, the Corinthians are being shaped by the culture around them instead of the cross. And Paul works to correct that. And he does by explaining that what we do with our freedom in Christ and that what we do with our bodies is incredibly and spiritually significant. And so he starts by referencing what are likely slogans being used by the believers at Corinth to justify their behavior. That's why your Bible probably has quotation marks around some of the content in verses 12 and 13. So look with me at the beginning of verse 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, that's the slogan, but not all things are helpful. So the slogan here, uh, which is something Paul may himself had said in reference to Jewish dietary laws, is all things are lawful for me. But that does not mean, as Paul points out, that all things are helpful. God hasn't called Christians to shoot for some bare minimum acceptable standard of morality, but to pursue that which actually helps us grow in Christ's likeness and benefit others. Paul continues in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, there's a slogan again, but I will not be dominated by anything. Sexual sin has a unique way of enslaving people. Listen to Tim Chester point this out in reference to pornography. He says, quote, porn never delivers. It's a cheap fantasy that only leaves us wanting more. People move from softcore to hardcore looking for what porn cannot deliver until they are enslaved. To that, Paul says, not me. 
I won't be enslaved by anything. And the Corinthians, they needed to hear that because in their use of these slogans to justify their sexual behavior, they are bearing witness to the fact that their sin is ruling over them. Paul continues in verse 13. There's another slogan here. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. That's likely the slogan. And God will destroy both one and the other. Here, Paul seems to be addressing some sort of mind-body dualism in the church that resulted in an elevation of the spiritual over the physical. So when it came to an issue uh, like sexual relations with a prostitute, the argument might have gone something like this. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and one day God will destroy both one and the other. In the same way, the body is meant for sex and sex for the body, and one day God will destroy both one and the other. So eat what you will, have sex with whom you will. This is where the Corinthians are wrong, and disastrously so. The body is not meant for sex, but rather for the Lord, Paul says, and the Lord for the body. He continues here, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Uh Uh-oh. If the body is meant to honor the Lord, the body's for the Lord, if the Lord values and honors the body, and if we are to be raised bodily like Jesus was, then that means God may very well care about what we do with our bodies after all. Amen. And that's precisely the point Paul's making. You can't separate the body and mind as though they aren't one whole. They are. What you do with your body, therefore, is incredibly significant. And this is obviously the case with sexual relations with prostitutes, and with sexual immorality in general. But Paul's not finished explaining the body's significance. He continues on in verses 15 to 16 with another one of these do-you-not-know questions. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Do you follow the argument there? When God saves us, He unites us to Jesus. Christ is our head, and we are his members. And because that's true, the Corinthians shouldn't sleep with prostitutes because when they do, it's as if Jesus is sleeping with prostitutes. That should be revolting to us. So if you are a Christian, and if you are in sexual sin, Remember what it is you are doing as a member of Christ and let that shock you into obedience if that's needed. But Paul's still not done. In verses 16 to 18, he says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other, sin is a person, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What in the world is going on here? Simply put, 
I think Paul is showing the Corinthians and us the disastrous effects of sexual sin. If you are a Christian, you are one spirit with the Lord. But the person who joins himself with a prostitute becomes one flesh with her. See the problem? You cannot be joined to both. If you try to do that, it is like ripping yourself apart. You're falling into what Proverbs 6.32 describes. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. So, Paul isn't saying that other sins like suicide, drunkenness, gluttony don't harm our bodies. They do. Rather, he's saying that sexual immorality has a uniquely destructive quality and that it takes what has been united to Christ and unites it to evil in a deeply, spiritually significant way. Sexual sin is serious, Bethel. And we need to be serious about putting it to death here. Do you know how to do that? Paul clues us in in verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Are you fleeing or are you flirting? Be sure to take whatever steps are necessary to guard yourself here, whether that's a filter on your computer or regular accountability with somebody in your community group, whatever. Do whatever it takes to flee from this. Tim Chester has another helpful comment on this front. He, and he's specifically referencing pornography again, but I think we could substitute all sexual sin. He says, quote, A life with porn is a poor choice. If you set it up in these terms, then you won't produce lasting change. We need to set it up as it truly is, as a choice between life with porn versus life with God. That's what Paul's putting forth here. You want sexual morality or do you want God? You can't have both. Lastly, verses 19 to 20, Paul closes with a final do you not know question and conclusion. He says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Here's another statement, I think, that should shock us. When we sin sexually, we are violating the temple of the Holy Spirit. Earlier in chapter 3, Paul referred to the church as God's temple. Now, he's applying that specifically to the individual believer. And his point is that believers are indwelled by the Spirit. So, they, we, should again take care about what we do with our bodies. As Christians, we belong to Jesus. We are blood-bought. That's really, really good news. That also has implications for how we live. Christ Purchase us, purchased us with his blood on the cross, and that means he gets to tell us what we can and can't do with our bodies. Because that's true, we should aim to glorify God in our bodies. This is the positive counterpart to fleeing sexual immorality. So flee sexual immorality, glorify God in your body. The body has great potential for evil, but that doesn't mean it's bad. We can and should use our bodies for good, to glorify God. And that means 
that we need to use them for God's purposes in the way that God prescribes. And we need the Lord's help here. We need to feel the gravity of this. We need to feel the grace too that's here. If you need to feel the gravity, reach back to verse 9 of this chapter. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom. It cannot get more serious. We need to feel the grace that's here too, though. If you have sinned here in the past and need a sweet balm for your soul, if you are wrestling with this in the present and need ammunition to fight for all of us, we need to hear if we are Christians, and such were some of you. You were washed. You're clean. You were sanctified. You're holy. You were justified. You've been declared righteous. We need the Lord's help here. So let's close in prayer and let's ask him for it. Father, we need you. Lord, shape us by the cross through and through. Lord, help us to be winsome representations of Christ in our culture. Help us in the best way that's faithful to your word to keep Christianity strange. Lord, enable us to live out a radical gospel ethic. Lord, firmly root us in our identity in Christ. And please, God, keep us faithful, especially so in the area of sexual immorality. Do this for your glory. Do this for our good. Do this for the good of others. In Christ's name, amen.